Mm, it's the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod, sponsored by Betfair. Hello, how are you? Thanks for choosing to listen to us today. No point in small talk, is there? You're thinking about the four-all draw between Charlton and Ipswich. Let's be <laughs> honest, we're all thinking about it and we will get to that. I'm Ali Maxwell. George Ellis here. You all right, mate? Yes, I'm, I'm all right. How are you? Really well. Enjoyed the weekend, both personally and EFL-ly. I you think say sh- the EFL is professionally for you. Yeah, I guess so. Personally yeah. and professionally. There you go. I also saw a match of NFL. Not as good you as saw- football. Yeah, ah. no, not as good. But you did see an EFL manager in the flesh, didn't you? Yeah. Walking from Wembley Central to Wembley Stadium, Carl Robinson. Looking very happy. And we'll find out why. Let's get into it. Shall we start with the championship? Let's start with good cop. Shall we? Good Cop this week isn't a team. It isn't a match. It's a player. Good Cop this week is Adam Wharton. Adam Wharton is 18 years old. He plays for Blackburn Rovers alongside his big brother, Scott. And we think he's a bit special. We really do. And his performance against Hull City on Saturday, the latest reason why. There's a compilation doing the rounds on Twitter that we can't share for fear of upsetting the rights holders that we respect and like to work with. Um, But it's doing the rounds. Let's say that. And watching it, you're struck by the fact that when you're 18 years old, you're not meant to look so composed in a championship midfield battle. You're not meant to be so quick to fire off first time or two touch passes good quality forward passes as well. The type that unlock attacks and, and hit the feet of your teammates and set attacking players away. Um, Wharton is one of these players that's, I always like to say three footed in that he can pass with his left foot, his right foot and the outside of his left foot. Uh, and that's where he got his excellent assist, a nice little threaded through ball to Schmodix. Can he not pass with the outside of his right boot? As yet unconfirmed. Right. Could be four footed. I think only Elliot Embleton in the EFL would be truly four-footed, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, Wharton is thriving. He's, he's the latest in a line of Blackburn Rovers Youth Academy products who have their pathways managed very well. He's having his minutes managed. He's started three of the last four games, but he's come off at the 60-minute mark each time. So he's not the only reason the Blackburn Rovers are doing well, and, and that should be made clear. And the quality in particular of, of his 20-year-old midfield partner here, Tyler Morton, who's on loan from Liverpool, is another story for another day, but someone who's also showing a, a ton of the qualities that we're talking about here with Adam Morton. But when was the last time we saw an 18-year-old doing this in this position of the pitch? Well, I guess I guess Jude Bellingham is the... Um... The one EFL grad uh, who had a teenage uh, in his teenage years um, was playing in that role. Um, yeah, from what I can see of him, um, he looks like a proper no ceiling player, doesn't he? Where um, his ability on the ball with both feet, his uh, tenacity in midfield, I think there's a lot of his his game uh, in terms of the off the ball physical side of things is pretty good as well. Uh, he's not just a, a straight up baller. So um, yeah, I am very excited by what Wharton could be and yeah he looks to me like a player who is very quickly going to be on people's radars and I'm sure you know it's now the end of October we've got two months until the transfer window opens I think if Wharton continues to, to play well um, he will be it's I mean it'd be unlikely for him to move on in January but I, I do think he's a player who'll be linked to some Premier League clubs fairly soon because he looks to have it all. 
three months until 21 under 21's second official iteration. <laughs> Interesting. Who was it? Chris Kirkland, whose granddad bet on him to play for England when he was yeah. a kid. And I yeah. never, I never really know if these are super legit. And if so, like, what the circumstances are where a bookmaker is accepting that bet. I'm hoping you might know more than me. And and so how realistic would it be that Adam Wharton's grandfather, his hypothetical grandfather could, could bet on that? And if so, like what sort of odds do they normally offer? I think pretty bad odds. I mean, I'd, I'd love to know how many grandfathers have managed to get a bet on their grandsons to, to play for England who've then gone on to be postmen or... <laughs> You know, I think you hear about the good ones and, you know, a thousand to one realistically or whatever you're going to get is is probably um, a pretty, you know, pretty short price for, for someone of that age. I do. I mean, I'd love to have a price on Wharton to to play for England now. Uh, I'm not his grandfather, despite some reports to the contrary. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, he it's early days, of course. Um, but, you know, sometimes you watch a young player and you're like impressed by them and you think, wow, that's impressive they're doing this. If you take someone like Tyree Stolen, for example, you watch Tyree Stolen and you're like, this is a really talented kid, really fun to watch. I like him a lot. Would you say he is destined to play in the Premier League? Maybe not. Uh, with Wharton, you watch, you think, yeah, yes, this is someone who looks to me like they can play at any level. And that is exciting. Before we get to your bad cop, let me just tie off Hull nil, Blackburn, Rovers 1, because there were 21 other starting players and then a few off the bench as well as much as we love Adam Wharton's performance it's four wins in a row for Blackburn and you know to start the season people thought that Preston North End were the championship's great statistical quirk with their lack of goals for and against but I think as the weeks pass it's emerging that it's it's Blackburn all along because get this Blackburn have played 18 league matches they have scored first in 11 of 18 it's a good record they haven't conceded a single equaliser yet in 18 games, having scored first in 11. Ridiculous. So in seven of the 11, they've just won it to nil. Happy days. And then they've had four 2-1 wins. All of them, they were 2-0 up before the, the opposition notched. So all comfy-ish. Um, seven matches they've conceded first. And they haven't scored a single equalising goal either. So six defeats to nil. And one three-two loss to Bristol City, where they were three-one down, brought it back to three-two. I mean, what is that? I could I could gather a team being so good when they go ahead that they don't concede an equalising goal in eleven, but to not even score one as well, remarkable. Good win, good performance. John Dal Thomason with some kind of nice sneaky tactical and personnel decisions here. Brought in Smodix and Dolan for Hedges and Carter, and they played some some nice stuff. The front players combining well, in particular Gallagher, Diaz. And the goal scorer, the match winner, Sammy Smodix. Everything going very well for Blackburn Rovers at the moment. They travel to Coventry. Or do they travel to Coventry on Tuesday? That's what so. we'll discuss in just a second. What's your bad cop this week in the championship? Millwall away is my bad cop. Um, not Millwall at home. Millwall at home are awesome. Love them. They win <laughs> loads of games. They're, they're very good. Gary Rout doing a great job. And he's doing a good job generally at Millwall. But Millwall away are, yeah, a, a very, very poor side uh, and I think their poorest performance on the road did come on Saturday where they were beaten 1-0 by Huddersfield. Uh, their record so far this season uh, in away games is that they've played eight. They've won one, which was their away game uh, a couple of weeks ago at Bristol City that they won 2-1. They've drawn two against Rotherham and Swansea and they've lost all the others. Yes, so, uh, four of these other games have come against teams currently in the top Five. Um, so you got Burnley two 0 loss, Blackburn a two one loss, Sheffield United, Norwich both losing two 0 uh, But then they went to you know I I would have probably fallen into the camp of saying hold on, 
the fixture list has been very, very uh, unfair here to Millwall and their good home form will, will surely translate into good away form when they play the weaker teams in the division. Um, I am going to credit Huddersfield in a second, so don't panic Huddersfield fans. But um, they were really poor in this one. Um, they didn't have a shot, Ali. Didn't have a shot until the 80th minute in the game uh, where Tyler Bury had a quite a good shot. Well, quite a, a, a big chance that was eventually saved by Lee Nichols in the, in the Huddersfield goal. But Huddersfield went ahead um, very early on uh, with a ridiculous goal. Um, you know, it registers as 0.01 expected goals. I think it registers as just a zero because uh, <laughs> Nakayama, um, just, it's a terrible cross. It makes me laugh when you see someone put in a really bad cross and then five seconds later, everyone's hugging them and patting them on the head. It's like, that is just terrible football. But Nakamura looks inside, tries to wedge in a left footer and it flies into the top right-hand corner. Very fortunate. But there was absolutely nothing fortunate at all about the fact that Huddersfield and Mark Fotheringham came away from this one with three points because they were by far the better team. Had plenty of chances in the game uh, to go further ahead. Uh, Rodoni had a header that was cleared off the line. Um, we saw Danny Ward have a decent chance as well on the, on the break late on. Um, it was basically one-way traffic until that Bury chance uh, in the 80th minute. And then after that, a couple of kind of very small chances for Millwall as well. Um, so uh, an abject display by Millwall. I think we have to give Huddersfield big credit for that. But I think when you're 1-0 down in a game after five minutes against a team who are 23rd and you don't have a shot until the 80th minute, there's only so much credit you can give the home team. Uh, I think that they're... Um, you know, Fotheringham said it was the best performance under him so far. It clearly was, and no, no denying that. But um, with the help of a a toothless Millwall side um, play, to play against, I'm just smiling at at the idea of you just being the most like gr- the grumpiest teammate of all time. If you were playing for Huddersfield, there, everyone's run over to Nakayama, and exactly. you're you're walking back. You probably go to the sidelines to take a drink of water. You're just shaking your head. I push and- him. And and after the game, he comes up to you. He's like, George, mate, I don't understand. What's the you know? Is there a problem between us here? And you've just gone. I I think everyone's too outcome based here. I'm a process guy, and that cross was terrible. And I, I want you to improve the process before we start celebrating outcomes. And he goes, okay, I, I understand that, and I respect that, and I'll I'll work on that. Is this meant to be like a comedy bit? Because everything you've said just there is exactly how I think you should react. Comedy's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Let's okay. move on at, with, yeah, nice nod to, to Huddersfield's out-of-possession improvement under Fotheringham, um, which has been very clear, particularly since that shambles of a game against uh, Luton, was it, the thrill? Now, for, for his next trick, would be some attacking play with maybe a bit more substance, but good, positive stuff for Huddersfield. Let's talk West Brom nil, Sheffield United 2. It was the first game in charge for Carlos Corberan, and it did not get off to a good start. Uh, Sheffield United were very comfortably the better side from the off here. Uh, they they themselves were six without a win before this, but uh, in reality, the, the quality, the confidence, the, the the patterns of play and the individual players, they had the edge in all of those uh, areas. Uh, and you could see here, the first goal was a lovely ball over the top from Doyle and a brilliant assist from George Bulldog to, to catch what was quite a high ball that came over his shoulder, over the defender as well, and just to guide it across perfectly first time on the volley. Uh, it was brilliant and, and Iliman and Jai 21 under 21's Iliman and Jai um, we said we wanted more goals from him that's seven now for the season which is the same as as last season's effort so plenty more to come you'd think it was probably his assist I think that's more reflective of why we like and Jai so much a bit of strength to kind of um, a control and then uh, control a loose ball and then shrug off Darnell Furlong's pressure uh, then bursting away from Furlong at speed before uh, shifting it to McBurney who just showed his 
own confidence right now with a brilliant curling finish. So, so two nil down, George, before West Brom had really had a decent effort. Uh, let's talk Carlos Corberan as West Brom manager. I don't really know what I make of this appointment, so I'm hoping that you have some slightly clearer thoughts than me. I think it is a good appointment if everyone involved in the club is willing to give it the time that it needs, personally. Um, I think there's been quite a pronounced dip in performances since Steve Bruce was sacked. I know that that will not be a popular thing for many Baggies fans to hear. I'm not for a second saying that Bruce shouldn't have been sacked, um, but it felt to me like before, you know, before the Bruce sacking, they were a team who, you know, I feel like it's becoming my own cliche, but they're a team who, when they play badly, would lose. When they played well, would lose. In the game since then, they have been poor in my mind in four games, uh, of which they've won one. Um, but I think the performances have dipped. I don't think the results are going to improve with them. I think Corberan is such an interesting manager in that he's managed two full seasons in his whole career. The first of which at Huddersfield was pretty underwhelming. You know, he managed to just keep them up uh, in a season where they weren't necessarily expected to go down. Uh, I think we had them fairly low and, and, you know, it was seen to be a bit of a surprise. They weren't great. Uh, and then in the second season where he took a team and a squad, um, added a couple of key low knees, which I think it's important to remember that he did have a couple of players who were you know, certainly in like Levi Colwell's sense, a, a Premier League player playing at the back um, for them. And that made a, a massive difference. And they obviously massively overperformed where they should have been in terms of going to the playoff final. But you are looking at, you know, 50% under, well, not 50% average, 50% massive overachievement. So especially when you consider that it took 12 months for the Corboran appointment to really work at Huddersfield, you have to be going into this season thinking for Corboran, just irrespective of the budget, irrespective of um, the players and the talent they've got at their disposal. The only expectation you can have for this season, in my mind, is to stay up. Um, you know, I think you can have issue, you know, if they do end up finishing 19th or 20th, but the results and the performances and the style of play is very poor, then obviously that is a different um, reason to, to doubt him. But I think in terms of pure achievement, when you've appointed a guy whose only success has come after a season, you have to anticipate that might be the same here, that he might need his own players to come in, that the training methods or whatever else that he uses might um, might need that too, especially when you consider that he's just been sat from Olympiacos having won two games in 11. So if they give him time, which is something that not many West Brom managers have, have got, recently, then I think it will be okay. And hopefully they can build in the image of Corberan. If they're expecting him to come in and immediately get West Brom operating at a high level and to lead them on a merry dance to the playoffs, Steve Cooper style, I think there are probably better candidates to do that. Mm. Well, I would love to know what sorts of conversations were being had between Ron Goulet, the CEO, um, the ownership group, if they are interested and hands-on at all. I don't really know. I suspect not really. Those are the reports anyway. It would be interesting to, to hear what sorts of conversations they had along those lines, because I agree with everything that you say. I think it's a really interesting discussion. The, the other thing that I find interesting, and again, I don't feel like I have a particularly strong stance here, is I've seen a few people saying, well, Corboran's style of football is not a good fit here for, for this squad. Um, and I don't really know which way to look at that because do we assume with Corboran and with a manager like him that's only had one substantial job so far, do we just assume that the way that they played for a season 
is the only way that he can succeed. So like Huddersfield last season, pretty low margin, incredible organisation out of possession, huge set piece proficiency, not a ton of exciting attacking play. Does that mean that's the only way he can coach? Because that's kind of what I've seen being suggested, particularly on social media. And instinctively, I don't want to believe that. Like instinctively, yeah. I, I, I look back at the season before where ironically Huddersfield were really poor and we weren't very impressed with Corbrand's management of that team because they looked pretty shambolic at times and he was going for a much more ambitious approach in and out of possession. That makes me feel like that's more of his sort of natural um, desire, the way to play, particularly having come, having worked under Bielsa at Leeds for a few years. I, I remember Jed talking to us and saying that it was completely nuts playing against Huddersfield under Corbyn for like the, the sorts of quirky stuff that they did that no other team was doing. That makes me hope that he can produce a much better attacking team at West Brom than he did at Huddersfield because theoretically at least the players are better than that. But then a lot of this comes back to this idea that the West Brom squad, or at least a large part of it, are players who have been either underperforming or unmotivated or both for, for some time. So there's quite a lot of work to do on a few fronts here. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, we, I think so much the narrative around managers is so reactive and based on a small sample size and even sometimes based on just entrenched ideas rather than actually looking at the, the mountain of evidence. You know, for example... Corbyn's actually a great example of this, where because he was associated with Bielsa, there were people, even like last season, who seemed to think that Huddersfield were playing some kind of Bielsa ball, when actually the style of play was just completely different. There was still like an intensity there. They didn't massively sit in, but certainly when they were ahead, they dropped off. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, we think of certain managers, whether it's Tony Pulis or Valerian Ishmael or managers like this, where they do seem incredibly entrenched into the way that they want to play. There are other managers, Tony Mowbray, Alex Neal, who we see basically on a, on a on a job by job basis, changing the way that they play based on the players at their disposal. And I do think if, you know, Corbrand surely having worked under Bielsa at Leeds, having gone into Huddersfield and taken a year to kind of work out the best way that he wanted to get his team to be effective, which was a different way. It would be very surprising to see him come in at, at West Brom and see Jed Wallace and see eventually Daryl DK and see uh, John Swift and not think to himself, you know what, maybe we can be a little bit more, you know, take a few more risks going forward and try and get those players on the ball as much as possible in the final third. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be surprised if it was as pragmatic, but mm. you know, we'll see. Sheffield United with a, a big away win. I was desperately trying not to get concerned about that that stretch of six without a win. At first, I was happy to put it down to injuries. And then just as it stretched to five or six, I was starting to get a little bit concerned, even though I wasn't seeing like a particularly concerning drop off uh, off a cliff in terms of performances or in terms of, 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 you know, those patterns of play that are so entrenched right now and so effective when everyone's on it. Um, so it's good to see them get back in business here. And, and I expect that Personally, I expect that they will carry on towards the top of this division for, for the rest of the season uh, from this point. It was interesting that uh, Paul Heckingbottom was keen to keen to reveal after the game that um, 
him and his staff having questioned how Corbrand would set up in his first game with nothing else to go on. He basically asked one of the staff members to go on social media and look at uh, the like training sessions that West Brom tweeted out. You know, it's quite popular now. Clubs will tweet out like, here's Carlos mm. Corbrand's first training session. And it'll be like, uh, it'll be him going like, guys, we want to play with intensity, guys. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's actually, that's, that's Mikel Arteta. Anyway, yeah. um, Hecky reckons that they were able to see what Albion were going to do because they put it out there on social, which I thought was quite funny. Um, let's move on, get through some of these games. George, why don't you tell me about Birmingham 2 QPR at nil on Friday night. We spoke privately on Friday about how we felt that Beale mania might have gone a little too far uh, and that Eustace mania was still a little under the radar. Yeah, it's Sometimes the annoyance of recording the betting show first thing on a Thursday is sometimes, um, you notice something after recording. And by the time Friday afternoon came around, I'd, as I relate to you, so it's not just a massive after time, or at least to the thousands of people listening, but not to you anyway. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I kind of suddenly looked at this game as being a real case of a Birmingham side who had not been getting their rewards for what had been, you know, it had been a good run of form nonetheless. You know, they'd drawn a lot of games as well, but in my mind, they were basically the better team in, in the majority of their recent games, including the two under defeat against Blackburn in midweek. Up against the QPR side, whose results had been good, but there were some serious red flags about the, you know, the, the likelihood of them being able to stay in this for much longer. Um, whether it was the the 3-0 win over Cardiff was the most positive, but that came off the back of a penalty and a red card after eight minutes. Um, the 2-1 win over Wigan, which um, was by, you know, Beale's own admission, a very fortunate three points in a game where Wigan created by far the better chances. Uh, whether it was the, even go back to the, kind of the beginning of, of October and the 2-1 win over Reading, where they scored very, very late um, to win that game 2-1. It's basically since Chris Willock has been injured, QPR's performances have dipped. Um, and this was a game where, you know, by no means were Birmingham much better. Um, I was disappointed in Aaron Trusty for admitting that he didn't try that incredible scorpion flick finish because uh, it was an unbelievable goal visually uh, and looked genius on first viewing. I, I kind of assumed that he would have meant it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, two loanies get, getting the two goals, which is important. QPR missing a penalty in the second half through Lyndon Dykes. It wasn't a game of loads of chances. It wasn't like Birmingham were much, much better than uh, than QPR, but their performance level is generally pretty high. And if you continue playing that way, you're going to come out on top in, in some games. Um, there's no cause for panic. I don't think for QPR either. They're not suddenly a bad team, um, just you know, they have been top of the league in the last 10 days and I'm not convinced they are the best team in, in the championship. So um, yeah, delighted for John Eustace. He is quite quickly becoming one of my favourite managers in the, in the league and in the EFL. Uh, I'm excited about what he can do and what he does. Um, it was a bizarre decision not to send off uh, Hannibal, which might have had a, a, a big impact in the second half where he was already on a yellow card and just a really classic case of if anyone who hadn't been booked had committed that foul, they would have been booked. It doesn't make any sense. A second yellow card is the same as the first, as, as the first yellow card. I must admit, mate, I thought the Hannibal lecture was fine. I thought <laughs> it was the right decision. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> um, He's approaching but... Gus Hamer, Gus Harmer. Harmer. Gus Harmer. You, you, could, you could say his name all of last season. You've suddenly just changed. As if yeah. you've met someone, if someone called Hamer, and now you're in pot, you can't get them out of your mind. Yeah, me and Ben Hamer, the goalkeeper, have become very <laughs> close. Uh, he's he's approaching Gus Harmer box office status already, isn't he, Hannibal? He's he's just mm. he's everywhere. I, I I like this one potentially being, potentially being extra sweet. 
<laughs> for John Eustace because, of course, he was at QPR for four years as a first-team coach, assistant manager type. And given how often he was clearly applying for other roles, it was pretty obvious that Eustace was ready to take on another senior management gig to follow on from his magical, uh, mythical Kidderminster side. And QPR obviously went with Mick Beale. Now, they won't be, they won't be regretting that obviously right now but I, I would have thought that that would have been quite a nice moment for him to have uh, to have got the win over them and last word for John Ruddy because I I don't often praise goalkeepers because I know that my words carry a curse uh, and I'm about to curse John Ruddy but he's playing so well that it is worth doing so he has been commanding incredibly authoritative he's a, a front foot goalkeeper in terms of coming and claiming crosses he's not someone that gets stuck to his line um and even before Friday night, where he saved a penalty to keep their two-goal lead, he projected very well on the shot-stopping stats on Opta Analyst. He is the goalkeeper with the best goals-prevented rate uh, of any keeper that's played um, the majority of their team's minutes. So, uh, you know, I went back on Scout and watched every goal Birmingham have conceded this season uh, in case I'd missed a howler. And there hasn't been any. I don't think he's really been at fault for any. So there you go, John Ruddy. Can you can you resist the goalkeeper curse in the championship? That's the big question. Norwich beat Stoke 3-1. Uh, I had a, a mole at this game, the Norfolk mole, who who said he said basically pre-match that Carrow Road felt like it was on an absolute knife edge in terms of this being a game where if Dean Smith's side, you know, suffered defeat or another sort of insipid draw, then I think the fans were quite close to mutiny. Um, as it is, they've beaten Stoke 3-1 after what Norfolk Mole said was a pretty poor start, a pretty awful first half where there was a lot of nerves out there. Norwich not playing with much confidence uh, and it was kind of injected into them in, in one move, which brought up, uh, upon the first goal. And it was Gibbs, the youngster in midfield with a good bit of midfield play, winning the ball and then quick ball forward to Pukki to start the attack. And it was his uh, little jink and then shot that was parried into the path of, of Ramsey to score. Uh, then apparently Norwich basically sat back kind of nervously, not really sure what to do, having gone ahead and the fans were getting more frustrated. So it was very good timing when Pukki and Ramsey combined really well for his second goal. I think after that, the place relaxed a little bit. Todd Campwell's appearance off the bench seems um, quite notable in the, in the way that he wanted the ball, um, the energy that he brought, the way that he was interacting with the crowd. And he was kind of injecting a bit of passion into things which the crowd were feeding off. So um, a, a good day for them. Notable, particularly because Max Ahrens did not play. And it's only the second game that he has not started for Norwich in the championship since August 2018, which is the month wow. that, he, that he joined, that he basically joined the first team, made his debut. Um, so Byron played right back, certainly not going to get forward as much, but um, seemingly quite solid here. Uh, and Sam McCallum played left back. Uh, we haven't seen him too often in a Norwich shirt, so it's nice to see someone who's been farmed out on loan so much um, get his chance in the side. Last thing my mole said was that Stoke have the foundation of a good side, but no firepower. Fossu, their most dangerous player. So there you go. Tarek Fossu has been performing pretty well, I'd say, in a Stoke shirt recently. Mm. Why don't we talk about Burnley 2, Reading 1, George? How about Manuel Benson, the dribbly Belgian? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, both the Belgians, Benson and Zaruri. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago that Zaruri was the one who was catching my eye and Benson took that personally mm. um, because even though it was Zaruri who scored the all-important winner, uh, it was Manuel Benson with a, a really good uh, equalising goal, uh, a left-footed strike, a, kind of a dipping ball that he had to backpedal and strike on the full uh, into the bottom right-hand corner and then his own twinkle toes and run and, and delivery was such a good ball in as well. Um, you know, both the run and, and the ball were of the top quality. 
and Zuri at the back post just to head a very simple header home. Um, have to, of course, mention the you know the the, the big moment in the game um, that probably ha- probably ended up being a three a three point swing came when Tom Ince was quite clearly uh, taken down in the area and the penalty wasn't given at one all. Paul Ince said after the game that it was a penalty. Vincent Company said after the game that it was a penalty. I'm saying it was a penalty. I think everybody knows it was a penalty. Um, the company made the point that they feel like they've had um, some bad luck already this season in terms of penalties being awarded. So, you know, that whether that's true or not, it's fairly relevant, I think. Um the officials have sadly made a decision here that is going to cost Reading. And, and I, I'm continued to be pretty impressed by Reading. I think, you know, at their at their worst, they still, unlike early in the season where they lost those two games and were thrashed in amongst all the wins, they seem to make life very difficult for every team that they play. They don't give up chances particularly easily. Um, you know, I still think that when they do give up chances, maybe um, in terms of the goalkeeper, uh, who I think has the worst goals prevented rate, uh, rate in the in the league. Um, they do struggle a little bit, but... Um, Ince has got them to be a, a pretty awkward team to play against and Vincent Company will be over the moon that especially from 1-0 down from a Tom Ince goal they were able to negotiate their way back into the game and it's the second time they've done that of course having been 2-0 down against Sunderland and won that game 4-2 so we're starting to see a Burnley side now who earlier in the campaign struggled to hold on to leads they now seem to be able to hold on to leads and even when they're behind have a, a knack and a way of getting back into it they have Rotherham at home uh, in midweek Rotherham's away performances and away form is abhorrent. So um, you would think that's going to be another three points for Burnley uh, as they as they make their merry way back towards the Premier League. Yeah, I honestly felt that Reading came out with great credit here. Um, and I had done some analysis last week, which I then, which led to me watching this game and their performance in particular, Burnley's attacking play with some interest because uh, I did some analysis basically on teams who are giving up big chances in games versus teams that aren't in the championship. So I was able to look at, at chances with a probability of 0.2 XG and above. I would say that's that's definitely not the opt definition of a big chance. I think that's 0.3 XG, but 0.2 XG, I think, you know, from my eyes, pretty solid chance. Reading this season have only faced eight shots of 0.2 XG or more. That's the lowest number in the whole league. To give you an idea, because I wouldn't instinctively know, I wouldn't expect everyone to know how many is a lot. Um, Burnley have faced 21 shots of 0.2 XG or more. Um, Reading, eight. The average in the league is 19. So less than half of the uh, of wow. the average. And then at the top end, you've got teams like Blackpool, Bristol City, who have faced 29 and 31 of such shots, respectively. Reading, again, only eight. And I think th- this is the key. Uh, I'm... I haven't gone on to do the tactical analysis and be able to tell you exactly what's happening. But if you're wondering why and how Reading are doing well, that's, I think, the secret. If you want to study tactics uh, and if you've got a better eye and a bit more time than me, watch Reading's games, watch their defensive structure, watch how they are defending because somehow they are defending their box and the important areas within it unbelievably successfully and they are keeping the ball well away from Lumley and it's working very, very well for them. So despite defeat here, I think they came out of it with a lot of credit. At Wigan nil, Watford won. George, that brings to an end Slavin Bilic's first month in charge. It's been a busy one. Seven games in October, four of them wins and three of them defeats. Uh, what did you make of Watford's 1-0 win at Wigan? It's a lot of Ws, um, which we, we can't 
quite say yet about Southern Village's uh, reign at Watford yet. Although back to back wins, you know, home win against Luton, and then and then an away win um, goes a long way to forgiving. Uh, you know, certainly the the abject performance uh, against Millwall at Millwall recently. Um, this was a game. I guess of kind of fairly few chances. Um, it wasn't a classic by any stretch. Um, I think with the the week that Wigan have had, I was slightly concerned that maybe they would um, not be in a particularly good mindset for this. Uh, for those that weren't following, there were some stories and rumours around that um, that their, the players' wages hadn't been paid. Um, those were quickly. You know, not denied, but suddenly it transpired that they had been paid, and they gave a new contract manager, Liam Richardson, which seemed to be, you know, it's certainly a very good move. He's doing an incredible job there, but it, it seemed to be just a the timing of it suggested maybe it was a a bit of a PR exercise, a bit of a show of hold on, you know, we are still committed here, and we're, we're so committed that we are going to get our very good manager, young manager, to commit as well. Um, but in the game itself, you know, there was very little in it. Um, there weren't too many good chances. Um, the Joao Pedro header um, was probably the second that Watford had had with uh, Schmel Sar going fairly close earlier early on in the first half. Um, but there'll be frustration, I'd have thought, from Wigan that they weren't able to, to see the game out. Uh, this was, you know, it, it was a low margin, not many chances, not a great game for the neutral and the moment of quality from a, you know, a, a top level quality player. Um, and a sign that I guess of how Gerard Pedro's, you know, changed himself. I don't think two years ago he'd have scored that kind of goal. You know, a brave towering header at the back post. Um, he is seemingly physically a, a much, well, a, a very different player, I guess, to go alongside the guile. Mm. Another player who's scoring a lot of headers at the moment, having previously not done so, is Jerry Yates of Blackpool, uh, whose winning goal away at Coventry was scored by the fairhead of young Jerry, who is in some pretty ridiculous nick right now, is the league's top <laughs> goal scorer and the first to reach double figures this season. Um, a really open, entertaining game, this one, which is, is becoming typical of Blackpool under Appleton. I would say they are um, the team to watch, or the team's games to watch, rather, as a neutral. I think it's fair to say, um, what was it, 4-2 against Preston last weekend? The, the chaos of Bramall Lane the weekend before that. Uh, it's good fun. And look, at nil-nil here, Blackpool had all the early chances. Gary Medine in particular missed three fairly straightforward ones, I would say, before he scored the pretty difficult one, which was a, an instinctive flicked header, uh, the sort of goal that only someone that has probably headed the ball a million times in his life could could possibly score. Uh, that made it level after Cover taking the lead, uh, and then Yates scored the winner, a nice deep cross, thumping header at the back post. So a, a really good performance, good win for Blackpool away from home. Uh, Coventry will say they had some excuses and I'm inclined to agree with them. Firstly, in terms of personnel, they had a, a virus, a bit like Luton the week before, that, that ravaged the squad. Uh, eight players affected, six of them still played, um, but were presumably quite dehydrated in the second half. Um, Gyok was one of them that was missing, which on top of Waghorn and Godden being out, they had no recognised striker, so it was just a team of, of Callum O'Hare and Jamie Allen and, and Casey Palmer, kind of three attacking midfielders with no striker. Um, but also perhaps some distraction. Um, maybe this isn't the sort of thing that would impact a team's performance, but I think it would certainly have an impact on the mood of the crowd uh, because at the end of last week, we started to hear more murmurings and quite serious ones about Coventry's stadium the Coventry Building Society Arena. A lot of people will know that Wasps Rugby Club went into administration earlier this month. That has caused some big problems. The company that owns 
the arena were not included in the administration of wasps earlier this month, which is why Coventry were felt that they were kind of okay. But the ACL have filed a separate notice of intention to appoint administrators, which gives the stadium owners two weeks to find new investors to avoid going into administration. This does have a, a knock-on effect on Coventry City, potentially. Um, the, the BBC uh, local news were reporting they could be locked out of the stadium if ACL's financial issues are not resolved. So um, there were doubts as to whether Cov would play on Saturday. They did. Then there were bigger doubts over whether they'd play this Tuesday against Blackburn. Um, the latest update from the club before we hit record around lunchtime on Monday was that they are increasingly confident, and I quote, uh, that the game on Tuesday will go ahead. So we hope that that is true. Then, as if they needed it, there was a separate off-the-pitch issue. Coventry have also had a transfer embargo imposed on them by the EFL. Basically stems from an issue with HMRC, a cash flow issue, which stems from those home games at the start of the season being postponed due to pitch issues that were caused by the Commonwealth Games Rugby Sevens, which still feels ridiculous to say out loud, even though we lived it. Um, th- that loss of revenue from not having those home games, which are a big part of, a, of an EFL club's revenue, meant that the club had to enter an agreement with HMRC over unpaid tax. And, and when that happens, the EFL uh, automatically hand out a transfer ban until that gets sorted. So the club say they've made three of six instalments already. The final payment will be due in December. And once it's made, the embargo will be lifted. So in theory, there'll be no transfer business that will be affected by this anyway. Um, they weren't intending on picking up any free agents. So that is doesn't seem to me to be like a huge issue, but it still kind of contributes to this horrible sinking feeling that Coventry fans will be feeling that for the millionth time and through no fault of the fans, the future of their club, in particular where they will play their matches and if they will play their matches, reaches a kind of the next stage of a a horrible roller coaster, George, which they've been on now for, for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, we can only just hope that there is stability um, at the end of this. Um, it's ridiculous for a club who, you know, had to play their home games uh, at St Andrews for a few years, um, who were effectively homeless during that time, uh, to then having to be having to go through this again so soon after. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's as is always the case when there are issues at clubs. It's it's not really the the owners that are affected massively. I mean, I know that there'll be some. Um, you know, it won't be ideal for them, but it's not really the players, it's just the fans. It's the fans who end up having to pay the price. And that is the sad fact. So hopefully, um, you know, there can be some kind of resolution soon and, and Coventry can, can, can continue to play at home. Right. So on NTT 20 squad midway through last week, um, Matthew wrote, does anyone listen to the Monday pod and play a little game with themselves where when Ali offers George a choice of games to talk about, you have to guess which one George is going to take. I wish that was a competition because I've got like a 90% strike rate and guessing correctly. <laughs> George. I reckon I know what his tactic is because I, I know what I sometimes do when I can't decide. I know what your tactic is. What? Well, let's see if it holds up here. Would you like to tell me about Preston 2 Middlesbrough 1 or Cardiff 1 Rotherham 0? Yeah, it's going to fall into the normal Cardiff one, Rotherham nil. Oh no! Uh, what do you think? Oh. I was wrong. What, what I, do you think? I thought you just made it easier for yourself by just taking whatever the first one I say is, so that you. No, got, it's the last so, one. So that you've got a bit of time to react. No, no, no it's the opposite. <laughs> because sometimes, if you really catch me off guard, I might have, I might not have not heard the first one you've said. Because sometimes you give me like four. <laughs> so if I can't, if I don't have a strong view and I haven't already prepared which one I'm going to do, I. Um, yeah, I just repeat the last thing you said, basically, and then go from there. <laughs> but I, you know, I was listening to you then, and I, this is a game I did want to talk about beforehand. So much about this game, um, I just loved this from Cardiff. 
Um, to be honest, they were superb throughout the whole game. Uh, it was as one-sided a 1-0 as you're going to see. Um, they dominated the first half. They were lucky not to go ahead. Uh, they thought they had to set Shea Yojo before it was disallowed. O'Dowd had chances. Uh, Mark Harris had chances as well. Um, and when the goal came, it was one of the best goals we saw all weekend, I think, in, in any mm. football. Unbelievable feat from uh, Philly Jean is not my lover. Um, he came on uh, just after the hour mark. Uh, this is Jaden Philly Jean Bidates. Uh, he did come on, didn't he? Or did he start? Yeah, no, he came on at he came on at half time and he gets the ball in a tight area inside the box. And it's a couple of twisty turns and suddenly just a drag back and then leans back and just plants the ball into the top right hand corner. Definitely ticks all the boxes in terms of being pretty unique Which, skill. Unbelievably famous elite level goal. It made me think of Ronaldinho Can, against Chelsea. Ronaldinho against Chelsea. Yeah. Co-signed. Hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it was closer. But also, the thing about Ronaldo, Ronaldinho's one is that he kind of was standing, not touching the ball, doing his little shakes. Mm. Whereas for Philly Jean, it was the drag back and then the lean back and then and then the finish. It was brilliant. I mean, it was such a, a moment of quality. Better, if anything, better. Um, and Mark Hudson has had such a frustrating couple of weeks off the back of, you know, such a good start to his caretakership to then have, um, you know, a ridiculous red card go against them at QPR, followed by, you know, probably their best player smacking a ball uh, into Ben Cabango's face uh, and getting sent off and having a three-game ban. Um, to bounce back with this kind of performance is big. I, I, I still maintain, I said it a week ago, I'm getting pretty concerned about Rotherham. Their away performances are so bad. Um, you know, at home, they're still decent and they're still picking up points and that is going to be incredibly important to their possibility of staying up but Matt Taylor the first thing he's got to do is he's got to find a way to get um to get Rotherham to be some kind of an attacking force uh, away from home you know they have drawn four games on the road so far and lost three they're picking up some points but of those four that they drew two were nil nils uh, and and all three of the games they lost were to nil uh, they've only scored four four goals on the road and two of those came um in a two to draw against Coventry so I, I just I, it feels to me like they're going to lose so many away games it's going to put a lot of pressure on their home form mm. um, and this was a case I think they had three shots in the game with none of them on target uh, against the Cardiff side who you know it wasn't a game of few chances Cardiff created loads so all credit to Cardiff a brilliant performance um, but Rotherham need to uh, find a way to just get a bit better on the road Good news is they travel to Burnley on I know. Wednesday I mean this will be the most archetypal podcast is that now Rotherham go to Burnley and beat them like 2-0 huh. and I look an idiot well Preston beat Middlesbrough 1-2-1 uh, this was Michael Carrick's first game in charge of Middlesbrough ended in defeat team news for, for Borough was that he didn't make a ton of changes to be honest uh, it's it's not going to be some crazy revolution for, for Carrick it looks like he's going to sort of take a slightly calmer brief to see what he's working with. Uh, we saw Isaiah Jones playing very high up on the right side. Um, Giles kind of having the whole left flank to himself, whereas Jones had Tommy Smith behind him, providing a bit more defensive support. Um, Chibak, Pom and, and Muniz up top. Uh, and Riley McGree kind of uh, breaking forward from midfield with Hayden Hackney and Jonathan Housen there. So interesting on that front, but the most interesting tactical review from this game is that Ryan Lowe did not play three at the back for the first time in a league game uh, since he became Preston North End manager. He's obviously decided for this game that the the other centre-backs, not named Lindsay and Story, are either 
not good enough or in poor form or not suited to, to the role that he wanted them to do. I noticed that Hughes and Cunningham were both on the bench. They would ordinarily be playing uh, left of, of, uh, of a back three, uh, but not here. And I don't want to overreact. They obviously won. So you want to say that was a good move and it worked really well. Realistically, Preston's goals and Borough's goal came from set-piece situations. Uh, in, in Preston's instance, it was Liam Lindsay keeping a loose ball alive for Reese to absolutely mash it in. One of the most powerful sh- goals of the season, you'll see. Uh, and then Lindsay again hooking uh, a deep cross back across for uh, the winning goal as well. So um, a, a, good re- a good reason to talk about Lindsay, who I think is a player that's gone a bit under the radar this season. He's playing really well for Preston and... Like last season, he never played more than three games in a row and basically never made it into Ryan Lowe's starting 11 and spent a lot of time sitting on the bench. So it's good to see that he's kicked on this year. He's absolutely nailed down his spot now, Mm. just having a very good season. Obviously, they didn't play three at the back here, but in general, he's been playing the central of the three. And I'd say he's been doing pretty much what you want in that role um, in terms of the defensive stuff, the aerial stuff. uh, And he's very comfortable passing with both feet as well. So Liam Lindsay, probably the most important man here as he set up both goals uh, and having a good season. That's the end of the championship where we also had a couple of draws. Bristol City drew one all with Swans and Luton drew one all with Sunderland. Let's go to League One where good cop is the best game of the season has already happened. (laughs) Charlton four, Ipswich four. I mean, what can you say? We've had some crazy scores this season. We've had some crazy scores since we've been doing the pod. Uh, Hull 5, Bristol City 5 springs to mind. We've had loads of crazy stuff happen, in fact, every single week. But four goals in injury time to go from 2-2 to 4-2 to 4-all is astounding. Just one normal day is all we ask for. It will never, ever happen. The best part of this after the full-time whistle, was that Charlton have tweeted the full 10 minutes clip of injury time. It's the sort of thing that you don't really get to see normally if you haven't watched it live. And it's so it's good. Crap. And I've watched it like five times already. And the, the first note I, I make every time I watch it is that when the clip starts and the clock's just hit 90, the players all look exhausted already. And it's only 2-2. T- <laughs> like Charlton have fought their way back from 2-0 down to get level. And the general vibe that you get is that it's likely to stay the same. Uh, Ipswich are just kind of working it around and they fizz it into Ladapo, who produces a brilliant piece of, of centre-forward play, receiving the ball with back to goal, touch to the side to create a bit of space and then a powerful shot into the corner to put Ipswich 3-2 up. As they're lining up for the kickoff, on comes Richard Keogh to shore up Ipswich's defence and Brownie on Charlton TV, cheeky this, he goes, well, if he plays anything like he does for Ireland, we might be in for it with a chance here. Uh, (laughs) And then he says, no, no, I'm being, I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious. Ipswich then knock it around for a minute or so. Very composed. They're seeing out the game pretty interestingly. In fact, they're not just seeing it out. Here's Morsey galloping forward and smashing in another 4-2. Wow. Well done, Ipswich, for rallying after giving away a two-goal lead. But Charlton kickoff, two goals down. There's 95 and 15 seconds on the clock. It gets to Raksaki. He cuts inside and there's no one anywhere near the box. There's no options on. So Raksaki just buys a little cheap foul off Sam Morsi. Doesn't need to tug him, but he did. Buys a little foul off him. Teasing ball in from Albie Morgan. Blackett Taylor at the back post. Knocks it across. Thomas taps in. 4-3. Get the ball, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. Ipswich kick off at 96.30 and basically nothing happens for another whole minute. 
97.30 we're at when Christian Walton has the ball. That should be a lot, say the Charlton TV comms team. We're all agreeing. That should be a lot. What a game. But that's not it. Ipswich managed to get back into Charlton's box. Morsi it is, who runs into the box. Could it be 5-3? It's not 5-3. Amazing tackle from Terrell Thomas on his first start at full stretch. I'm surprised he even got to this point in the game because he's barely played. Then Anike picks it up in his own half. He's miles from goal, shrugs off a defender, carries it 40 yards up the pitch, like one of the, the running backs I saw at Wembley yesterday in the NFL game. But then he has the composure to just nip it out wide where three Charlton players are waiting. And at that point, here's Charlton TV's Terry Smith. Anike to his left is Sessignon. Further left is Blanket Taylor. Sessignon loses him as a decoy. Back to Fraser. Out to Morgan. Looking to deliver the ball into the box. It's a deep one. Morgan. Dobson gets it with the header. Oh, it's there! Oh, George Dobson has levelled it up for Charlton with the last seconds of the game. Quite extraordinary. It looked like we were dead and buried. But Charlton had other ideas. Can you keep that in? <laughs> Absolute carnage, bedlam, chaos at the Valley. The big question, George, is how many fans are still there? How many have left? I don't think I even want to know because I don't think I'd like the answer. But Ed Sheeran's in the stands, obviously. Ed Sheeran's in the stands. Ed Sheeran's got this unbelievable expression on his face as the team that he supports and sponsors have thrown away a 4-2 lead from the 95th minute. Absolute shivers for Sheeran, wasn't it? I think we should let Terry Smith have the last word because this is just perfect. Good grief. It is something quite special here. <laughs> ah, well, it's very rarely I'm lost for words, but I have no idea what's been going on here. <sighs> Deep breaths. Two things. Firstly, it was incredible. I mean, it was just the scenes after the final whistle, the fact that it was Dobson, who is such an unsung hero for Charlton anyway, the fact that there are two aspects that, you know, I, I think add to the drama as well. Firstly, you've got Ben Garner being sent off and giving um, the massive one to the Charlton fans on his way down the tunnel. I've never seen anyone do that before where he is, he's been sent off, he's walking down the tunnel and before he goes in, he's smacking his chest and he's trying to G up the Charlton fans, which is why Raksaki after his goal does exactly the same thing. Um, that was in the first half, I think, that Garner was sent off. Uh, and then also, another weird little wrinkle is that the game was stopped twice in the first half because someone in the crowd had a whistle. And so twice, the second time, I can't remember who it was, an Ipswich player was through and thought he was offside and just stopped playing. And the referee said he would have to take off the players off the pitch if, uh, if, the, if the whistler did it again. It's basically a feature film, uh, I think, <laughs> with, with, with the Sheeran soundtrack. Unbelievable, incredible scenes. What did you not like in League One over the weekend? Wickham versus Morecambe, another draw. So Brilliant. I'm not taking up much uh, real estate on this podcast. It's kind of the story, I guess, is the bad cop. It's the game. I'm giving it to the game where Wickham went one up and then twice thought they'd gone 2 0 up. The first was a Sam Vokes header, which was disallowed. And it's one of those where I reckon Vokes has scored that goal. 20 times in his career where he has definitely used his hands to get an unfair advantage, but he has used all his, you know, his decade or so of experience and his strength to plant his hands on, jump up, nod the ball in the back of the net and, uh, and wheels off to celebrate. 
the goal is disallowed. Uh, not saying it's the wrong decision at all, because um, it's a decision you don't often see given. And then still at, at the score being, I think it was after a one all where Morecambe scored direct from a corner. Again, ridiculous. And then they thought they'd scored again through Brandon Hanlon in the very last minute. And what you'll see is that Ripley comes out and makes a very good save from Hanlon. Uh, and then they kind of clash afterwards. Absolutely not a foul. It's a case where two players are going for the ball. They both get the ball. Does he tug the player back? Probably yes. It probably is a foul. But the bad cop, and the reason this annoyed me, is that Ripley then gets up to watch Hanlon put the ball in the back of the net. They all turn around to the ref. And Ripley suddenly, I reckon a good like six seconds later, suddenly thinks that, oh, he's thinking about giving something. And he goes down and goes down feigning injury. Given right. the fact that the foul was, wasn't even given on Ripley, uh, to see him go down like that it's just it's basically maybe just he hurt a, himself yes maybe he did I mean he, he carried on playing for the rest of the game I'm not giving it to Ripley I'm giving it to the game a ridiculous game full of bad moments and uh, both teams probably coming away well I mean it's a very good point for Morecambe to be fair uh, but Wickham certainly coming away feeling like they never want to look at that Saturday ever again feels like the type of game we could have just not spoken about but I'm I'm glad that well, we... but there were, in, there were incidents and I know how much you love the uh, you know officiating conversations that we have big time George, can you tell me what happened and why it happened at the Unibowl Stadium? Bolton won, Oxford three. Oxford started with a youngster called Gatlin Odonko up front, instantly one of the better names in the EFL. They also started with Lazio legend Javan Anderson, the right back playing right wing. And they weren't meant to win this match because of that and some other reasons, but they absolutely did. What's the story here? They did and they deserve to as well. It was a game that didn't go to script at all. Bolton were pretty much unable to hurt Oxford. I mean, we know and we've spoken that Oxford are one of the kind of big XG outliers of the season so far. There are some reasons for that in my mind. But defensively, they've been sound in terms of expected goals conceded all season. But here, where Oxford went ahead, and there was still a, a desire to continue to play their game. There was no dropping off Bolton, letting them back into the game. Simon Eastwood made a, a very important save which is the first time in a long time that as an Oxford fan, you can point to a goalkeeper making a save that you wouldn't necessarily expect a keeper to make, which has gone on to have a, had a, have a big impact in terms of, of winning points. I also think, and, and you know, there's been a lot of criti- criticism about Carl Robinson and his recent performance as Oxford manager. Understandably, that will now, or should at least, the talk about him leaving should stop after, in, well, in my mind, after two wins and a draw and a defeat against four teams who are in the top half of the table. Uh, two of those wins coming away from home against Exeter and uh, and Bolton. But the team on paper, as you mentioned there, doesn't look particularly good. You know, Sam Long got injured during the game, which meant that Steve Seddon played right back. What you ended up having was a centre-back in Kieran Brown playing left back, a right back in Javan Anderson playing right wing and a left back in Steve Seddon playing right back. Those are the three players that scored which is kind of remarkable. And when you think, I, I think that Robinson, whilst the, the criticism is right for the, for the recruitment, I would say that getting four points and getting that level of performance out of that 11 is pretty incredible stuff against that opposition. So tentatively positive stuff for Oxford, concerns for Bolton. You know, I think with Bolton, it's important to remember that it was two ridiculous late shows against Burton and, and Accrington that meant that they went from getting no points in those two games to six points. A couple of James before, Cordons. Before the form before those two 
for those two games is really poor as well. I'm a little bit concerned about Bolton at the moment. It does feel like their early season form has tailed off a little bit. Um, and it was two kind of incredible performances late on in games to get those six points. But mm. um, yeah, for Oxford, it does feel like, I mean, it feels like a massive game on Tuesday, basically against Fleetwood at home. The home form has remained very, very poor. Um, but if they can make it seven points from three games, then um, I think the the dissidents will be well and truly silenced for the time being. Good use of dissidents. When Bolton pulled one back on 73, I was pretty confident they were going to win that match. And then there was a there was a cross that just evaded the toe of Dion Charles at the back mm. post uh, and, and then Seddon made it 3-1 very quickly afterwards. Well, I hope Carl had a good time at the NFL game. I hope you enjoyed some of the uh, fantastic concessions on offer and um, all the entertainment that happens all the time because the match itself isn't happening a lot of the time. Anyway, uh, only team in League One with two wins in a week, as there was a full slate last week. The only team that won both games, Peterborough United. Um, Argyle could make it two from two if they beat Exeter tonight, but that game hasn't happened yet. Uh, in fact, it's three wins in a row for Posh, having beaten Oxford the Saturday previous as well. This one was a 1-0 win against Cambridge, and this meant a lot because Peterborough United against Cambridge United is a derby. A lot of people won't realise that or realise the, the strength of feeling, but I could feel it from both sets of fans pre-game. We had lots of good media mind game stuff. First from Mark Bonner, who stuck his neck out and had his head chopped off. Lost 1-0. <laughs> Grant McCann took the slightly safer approach, not saying much pre-game, and then saying quite a lot post-game, which, you know, probably is quite a good option on Derby Day. But um, fair play to Bonner. I quite liked that he played the game a bit. I obviously grew up watching Cambridge United as a season ticket holder. Um, the last time these two played in the league was over 20 years ago. So um, there you go. If, if, in terms of the game, it was pretty open, actually. If you're a posh fan, you wait 20 years for a league game against Cambridge and then quite early on, the opposition defenders go up to clear a ball at the same time and somehow nod one in for an own goal. A pure comedy own goal. Like if, one of those which where if you scored it as a striker, you'd be really chuffed with what a good header it was right into the top corner. Mm. If you're a Cambridge fan, you wait 20 years for a derby against Peterborough United and then two of your defenders go up for the same ball and conspire to score a ridiculous own goal. Own goal, and it's slightly less fun. Um, considering that was the only goal, it was actually very, very open. Both teams had chances. Nibs had two big chances for Cambridge. One of them, a great save from Bergstrom at one nil. Uh, and then Mason Clark, Clark Harris, Marriott all went pretty close for Posh as well. So um, it, there wasn't loads in the game apart from just one moment of disaster, really, for Cambridge United, I'd say. I'm already looking forward to the return fixture, which I think is going to be an absolute cracker. Uh, George, two of the divisions, hashtag big clubs, one four two, Sheffield Wednesday, four Burton, two, uh, which was a quite an important result for Sheffield, having drawn with Lincoln and then with Bristol Rovers and seeing Argyle and Ipswich pull clear. What did you make of this one? Yeah, a big win, as you say. Um, I don't think um, no, I don't think Burton were by any sense embarrassed by this one, even though they were four 0 down in the game. Um, I think Dino Mamria still, in my mind, is doing an okay job. Um, but Sheffield Wednesday were, were very, very clinical in that first half. Uh, Barry Bannon with a, a brilliant goal, Smith um, with a second, a penalty. Malik Wilkes beginning to show what he can do. Um, you know, I'm definitely the belief that in, in League One, at least, there aren't many wide forwards who are better than him. But as I say, I, I think with Burton. I think Burton probably anticipate that when they go to Hillsborough, they're probably going to lose uh, unless um, something miraculous happens. Um, and even though, you know, I, I put up 
Wednesday, uh, as my lay in the betting show, I said at the time, you know, they were obviously the likely winners and that is what transpired. Um, Burton's away form is an issue. Uh, well, their away results are definitely an issue. I think on the road, their performances have looked okay under Mamria, but that's something they have to sort out. They're currently bottom of the league now after Morecambe picked up that point against Wickham, which I think is a false position. You know, I, I, I'm still fairly confident that, you know, unless this um, improved run of performances under Mamria isn't sustainable itself, then they should have the opportunities fairly soon to uh, build on that. I mean, for Wednesday, the top end of League One, things change so quickly. Um, Ipswich dropping points, they pick up three points. Obviously, Argyle yet to play, uh, but if Argyle drop points against uh, Exeter on Monday night, um, then that brings them straight back into the automatic mix after it felt like they were falling away from it. It was kind of a pleasingly chaotic game, and I that that's because of Burton under Mamria and how mm-hmm. he's trying to approach these. I think there's something, I, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect this is the reasoning would be psychological basically for the way that he and his team are giving these games both barrels even though they're traveling away to a team that are you know have a huge talent advantage and are heavily favored to beat them i guess it's about you know picking up a team at such a low ebb and just trying to psychologically give them confidence and belief in what they're trying to do and 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 not just accept that they are a small club for the level, an underdog with a low wage budget who are going to struggle in these sorts of games. And so I I do find that an interesting part of management where it's like you weigh up the probability of we we probably will lose anyway if we go low block and just try and kill the game and go for a nil-nil or try and nick one. If we probably will lose anyway, but what's the... What's the psychological impact of that sort of mentality over time? And how much does it impact us when we then take to the field at home to, I don't know, let's say Cheltenham, who they played last mm. week and they beat. Um, I quite like this approach in a league like this, where there are te- there is such a mismatch between certain teams, particularly if you're Burton, you're going away from home. And I get pretty similar vibes. It leads me quite quite nicely on to Derby for Bristol Rovers too. I get a pretty similar vibe in terms of Joey Barton's approach uh, at Bristol Rovers and, and his absolute insistence that they will attack every single team even if it's their first season back at the level having been down in league two and and even if they are not favored to beat Derby County when they go to Pride Park but they're going to give it a go and I think this is what we're talking about this sort of front foot psychological motivation it was always going to be quite unlikely off the back of going to Sheffield Wednesday and getting a a very impressive one all draw Uh, and so it came to pass here they got thumped by Derby um, 4-2 uh, gave it both barrels, but were just quite chaotic at the back here. Uh, for Derby, it's great. It's, it's a first home win for Paul Warren. He needed that after a, a poor performance in midweek in a nil-all draw at home to Exeter. Um, there was plenty to cheer here. A McGoldrick hat-trick, all three of which were just beautifully taken. Didzi at his best, which is has always been one of the great sights in the EFL. Uh, Mendes Lang as well has been brilliant really all season for, for Derby but certainly was here as well he's absolutely rapid isn't he Mendes Lang and um, if they can get him in space to run into he's so so dangerous so uh, I've really no criticism for Bristol Rovers um, after what's been a brilliant month for them um, and a great effort live on Sky at uh, Sheffield Wednesday on Wednesday night but uh, this was a step too far and Derby in fairness absolutely made the most of it with a 4-2 win George I feel like we had a, a, a League One ketchup bottle at Fleetwood when they beat Accrington 3-0 with, with Aki, if anything, having made most of the running in the first half, couldn't force it in. And then a 10-minute period in the second half where everything clicked 
for Fleetwood. This is a team that hadn't scored more than one in a game in their last nine, scoring three goals in 10 minutes. And some of our favourite players in the leagues at the heart of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Carlos Mendes Gomez with the first uh, set up cleverly by um, Callum Morton. You know, a couple of players who, in my mind, should be, you know, I, I, I'm not saying they haven't been good already this season, but they should be two players who for Fleetwood should be massive assets in League One. Um, as you say, the game up to the first goal had probably gone Accrington's way. Um, I'm fairly, you know, convinced that Fleetwood have had quite a lot of games this season that haven't gone their way where they've maybe been better than the, the points that they've received. Uh, and as in that second half, they were able to create three opportunities that killed the game off very, very quickly. Uh, Accrington's defensive frailties uh, are there for everybody to see, um, even though they have been impressive on many occasions this season. It, it's games like that one on Saturday where you wonder if, you know, without Bishop, without Charles, you know, they need... Um, players who are clinical in front of goal and I'm not necessarily sure that they have that at this stage um, but yeah for Fleetwood certainly after a couple of, of disappointing results for Scott Brown to finally get that big resounding home win uh, will make him very happy Aki have lost five in a row they've conceded three goals in all five of those games um, mm. and they've got Lincoln away tomorrow night which is a big one Lincoln will want to bounce back after a 1-0 defeat at Port Vale not just a defeat but I can't quite understand how you go from such good results against Ipswich and Sheffield Wednesday to having two shots total at Port Vale, which came in the same incident, which came when Port Vale centre-back passed it straight to Garrick, who missed a one-on-one and and Virtue missed the rebound. Outside of that Mm. 10-second snapshot, Lincoln did not have a single shot at Port Vale's goal. So it was a a very comfortable 1-0 win for Vale. Um, Butterworth had a few sighters in the first half, which didn't go in, uh, but then he did slam home the rebound after a powerful Odebeko shot. I think those two are worth mentioning here for Vale because they are quite important in my eyes for the next few months in the sense that Ellis Harrison is the star and has been brilliant. And, you know, just the last few games has, uh, has maybe dropped off a little bit his numbers, his output was always likely to drop off a little bit. Uh, and that's where Odebeko and Butterworth are quite important because when you have one guy on the form of Harrison, that's probably enough. But when that drops off a little bit, you need to spread the load a, a little bit more. And I think that's where those two are, are kind of important. But overall, Vale have had a cracking month beating Derby, Cambridge, Lincoln. Uh, they lost narrowly to Sheffield Wednesday and Ipswich. No shame there. Uh, and then the one really disappointing performance was a home draw to, to Forest Green. But they're in impressive form. They're in good shape. Daryl Clark uh, doing a brilliant job, you have to say. Port Vale have just, just nudged themselves into the top half, albeit there's uh, like four points separating maybe 10th and 19th at the moment. So there's not a lot in it. Uh, and then Barnsley beat Forest Green 2-0. Uh, this was a Barnsley team that hadn't, won or scored in four games. So uh, a home game to Forest Green was just what they needed because Forest Green barely had a single shot despite holding onto the ball for 59% possession, which is is always kind of surprising for an away team uh, and a team in the relegation zone. But that's the way they want to play. The problem with that approach for Forest Green is they want to have the ball and their reasons for wanting it are, are sound, I think, when they're explained. But it only works well if you create chances with it, which they don't do very well. And if you can defend, particularly in moments of transition, if you can just defend space well, uh, which they certainly didn't do very well here. Barnsley just had their way with them, really, and created at will uh, Barnsley standout players. For me, probably Kitching and Williams uh, and the former Forest Green star, Nicky Cadden as well, all had good games. Uh, 
aside from the four-all draw, we also had Portsmouth one, Shrewsbury one. Great point for Shrews. And the same for Morecambe at Wickham, as you mentioned. Uh, their equalising goal, notable as it was both an Olympic goal and scored by an 18-year-old, an academy graduate mm. in Adam Mayer with his first Football League goal. And an Olympic goal in Joe Jacobson's house. Just great to see. <laughs> Cheltenham nil, MK Dons nil was a match that happened in a spa town on the edge of the Cotswolds, Plymouth Exeter tonight on the telly. George, League Two. Let's start with Bad Cop in League Two. Bad Cop in League Two. I mean, this... (laughs) This (laughs) is ridiculous. (laughs) A very giggly bad cop. Well, because it's, I mean, it's bad cop in like the... You know, it's bad cop in the uh, hen party kind of way, I guess. Um, <laughs> with a cop showing up at the door, you open the door for your hen party, and there's a man dressed in in police outfit, and he says, uh, "You know, you've been a bad girl. I'm gonna have to take you to. I'm gonna have to take you to jail." Oh God! And you look up, and it's Keith Girl wearing the sexy, Whoa. sexy outfit. <laughs> oh my God! Mysterious cow. I never thought. I never ever thought that Lee Johnson being asked if it was better than sex would ever be usurped as the greatest sexy, sexy EFL interview. But it didn't take long. It's only been a couple of years. And the best thing about this is that Johnson was ambushed that time around. Here, Keith Curl has just decided just to to really unload and say... (laughs) Try and summarise how you're feeling. Uh, how do I feel? Uh, uh, woke, woke up this morning, uh, had three requests. Yeah? Us to win, Man City to win, yeah? and me misses to be in a sexy mood. Yeah? Right. So I've got two out of three so far. So I've got, I've got a, a two-hour drive home yeah? <laughs> um, that I will, be, I will be grafting to make sure I get a hat-trick. <laughs> no, it's too weird. What's he thinking? What? what? But what I want to know is when he's when he's grafting on in the two hours zone. What's he doing? Is he on the phone? Is he like? Is he buying some flowers, chocolates? The whole thing is absolutely unbelievable. When I first watched it, he said I had three requests. I thought he was going to be talking about interview requests. I was like, oh, that's a bit of a shame. <laughs> Poor bloke. Um, so my bad cop goes to Keith Curl for one of the most unnecessary but wonderful uh, interviews I've ever heard. After a football game, uh, they won the game 2 1. To talk about it briefly, Hartlepool beat Grimsby 2 1. Grimsby going 1 0 up in the game. Hartlepool scoring twice very late. A massive result for him, a big result for Hartlepool. And um, yeah, hopefully Mrs. Carl was watching and decided to uh, to get in a in a good mood. Important to credit when we use uh, audio content from another source. So that was uh, from Alex Chandy. Alex is part of the Hartlepool media team. He was the one that posed the question to Keith Curl and got an answer that he was not expecting. Uh, my good cop is Swindon Town. Uh, the away team, the away performance of the season for them, for sure. The away performance of the season, maybe, maybe in the whole of League Two. They went to Mansfield. They won 5-2. I just think this has got to be one of the great away days, partly because mm. it's a really tough fixture. You're not expecting loads that has to be a part of an equation for a great away day I think and then the fact that 
your, your the, the dream away day would not ordinarily start with the opposition scoring before you've even touched the ball, but that's what happened here. Gordon tapping in at the back post after 30 seconds. Uh, and I said on the betting show that I thought Mansfield just seem a bit chaotic and a bit untrustworthy at the back compared to some of their promotional rivals. Well, we saw it here with Swindon's first goal, a heavy touch from Hawkins in midfield. And then as Wakeling broke forward, O'Toole came out to tackle him. Wakeling dipped past him and O'Toole just slide tackled Hawkins instead. Just two teammates rolling around on the deck together as Wakeling scampered away. Uh, That's an image I I won't forget for a while. His shot tapped in by Johnny Esther for 1-1. Then another suboptimal moment, uh, which is where your centre-back gets injured. Clayton having to come off and Beaudry coming on. Um, Beaudry almost immediately stepping out of defence, getting turned and then having a load of space in behind for Swan to run into and make it 2-1. But from that point it's just as good as it gets uh Lindsay sh- shook things up a bit formation wise played a diamond a wakeling up front with Jeff Kurt had a great game Hutton rampaged up and down the right side and, and kind of exposed a weakness there for Mansfield and then Gladwin and Williams brilliant in midfield as they have been for the last six weeks or so um Darcy's goal was amazing an absolute yeah. rocket into the top corner um, his role in this team, as far as I can tell, in possession is is just to be the one that takes a ton of slingshots, just hits it from range all the time, testing out League Two keepers. And there have been a few goals that have come from those situations. Um, it was a cracking strike. Just a, a ridiculously fun game, over five expected goals combined, which you don't see very often. Uh, and Swindon a fourth. Swindon Town a fourth. That snuck wow. up on me. It has. Yeah, me too. I'd agree. And so I think a bit of love for Scott Lindsay because... I think at this point, looking back at the summer departures um, in terms of Ghana and a lot of the players, I think now it seems fair to say that he was a very good choice, the right choice to replace Ghana, which uh, wasn't necessarily how some fans felt at the time. And then a bit of love for Sandro Di Michele as well, the technical director, because Sandro joined, had the manager search initially and made what I would consider to be quite a brave choice, to be honest, in, in appointing from within. And then... Like a lot of people within EFL clubs, Sandro talked about wanting to be creative in recruitment, using data to find hidden gems. Specifically, his quote was he wanted to identify players that are undervalued or underdeveloped and play a brand of football that showcases them in the best possible light and ultimately be prepared to let them move on. It's all about moving towards a more sort of sustainable model. Brentford was referenced. and But like everyone says that, but actually doing it is often a lot harder and dare I say it harder in league two than it is in league one and probably harder in league one than it is in the championship. I, I'm kind of don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. It's only been a few months and and I would normally say don't judge a recruitment process three months after the first transfer window has ended mm. because sometimes it takes time to bear fruit. I think the early signs are very good indeed for what they did this summer. You know, having lost Wallacott, McCurdy, Payne, Hunt, Conroy and more signing 19 players you know, out of them, yeah, there are some who haven't had an impact yet, but certainly Wakeling, Hutton, Khan, Darcy and Jeffcott, albeit he's on loan, they already look like successes in terms of what Sandro spoke about, undervalued or underdeveloped and playing a brand of football that's showcasing them in a, in a good light. So impressive stuff, picking results up in the meantime, which is, is also another tricky balance to find sometimes when you have a long-term vision for a club. Um, really impressive. Swindon, good cop, good time for it. Scott Lindsay, Sandro Di Michele. Good stuff. Uh, What next? I reckon we should go for the teams that won twice in the last week. Walsall, one of them, George, beat Rochdale 1-0. Yeah, Walsall been been very good at home um, for most of the season. Uh, Rochdale coming off the back of some decent 
uh, results. But for those who listen to the betting show will know that uh, a few red flags with, with regards to those results. And uh, yeah, we'll we're, we're pretty good value for their win here. Uh, game kicked off late after uh, Rochdale's bus was delayed, which mm. um, and yeah, in the game itself, it does feel like Walsall now are kind of really hitting their their form. Um, they haven't lost at home since the back end of, of September. Uh, as I mentioned on the betting show, the only four games they've lost away from home are, are clubs who currently occupy first, fifth, sixth and seventh. Um, it really, you know, they are alongside kind of Carlisle and Tranmere, the, the, the three teams, I think, who are currently mid-table, who have the capacity and the, you know, the potential to really... Um, kick themselves up the table um, it wasn't necessarily a dominant performance this it wasn't like they were way better than Rochdale but once they got ahead it was uh, continued to be them who had the better chances Noel's nearly making it 2-0 with a great strike I'm a big fan of him um, but yeah I, I anticipate this will be a, a continual upward trend for, for the Saddlers Shot volumes, Tom Knowles there to give him his full <laughs> name. I like the idea of a team kicking themselves up the table. Just a classic, classic football expression you've used there. Uh, Hayden White's first goal since the 25th of November 2017. Almost five years between goals. Uh, let's talk about Leighton Orient. They beat Salford 1-0. Uh, George, I need to tell you first about a nice Sunday evening message that we got on Twitter. Uh, it was just as I was watching episode three of The Watcher which is currently number one trending show on Netflix, is, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Is it good? Scary. It's, <laughs> it's pretty scary, and I was feeling on edge already. So then, right, little pause, make a cup of tea for the wife. Check Twitter. We've got a tweet from an account. The handle is Kid Samson O. Now, I gather Kid Samson is a reference to a soldier from Catch-22. Uh, and then the Twitter name is Lieutenant Scheisskopf. That's also okay. a, a fictional character from the novel and then film Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. And the, the, the account purports to like Leighton Orient, Greyhounds, Kent Cricket and the Detroit Lions. Great person. This account is looking forward to the pod, which is nice. Said, looking forward to hearing how Ali Maxwell and George Ellick explain yet again how Mansfield, Stevenage and Salford are the best teams in League Two. And then a clown face emoji, which I took to represent you. And then another clown face emoji, which I took to represent me. And then an upside down smiley, which I think represented Lieutenant Scheisskopf. Um, ironically, this message put me in something of a catch-22. Because, George, on the one hand... I think this guy sounds like an absolute wrong and a Sunday night menace and I've muted him so I never hear from him again. On the other hand, the thrust of what he's saying might have some merit. Have we given enough love and credit to Leighton Orient, top of League Two, 2.44 points per game, nine points clear of fourth, conceded nine in 16 games? Definitely not. No, we haven't. I think he's exactly right. I think part of that is because um, them and Northampton looked at the beginning of the season to be the two teams who... You know, that classic ripe for a regression. Um, and it's kind of happened with Northampton, but with, with Leighton Orient, they have um, improved as, as the season has gone on, I would argue. Um, Paul Smith with the all-important goal after some amazing play down the left-hand side. He's been one of the best attacking players in the league this season. Uh, I love the way that he goes down, checks to see if there's going to be a penalty. It's not, so he gets up and just carries on dribbling before, um, before scoring with a, with a brilliant finish. Their home form is just absolutely relentless. You know, they've only lost one game at home, which came against um, Northampton. They've drawn one game at home and they've won the other, what is it, seven, um, of which only one of them have they conceded any goals. So they've had six wins to nil at home this season. They conceded two goals in the 4-2 win over, over Hartlepool. Um, they are a relentless winning machine and they're away form. They're unbeaten on, on the road. So 
we absolutely haven't given them, given them enough credit. I hold my hands up for that. Um, I don't think I've ever said Salford are one of the best teams, have I? But if I have, then fair play. Um, but it's the sort yeah, of I mean, thing all, you do say. Like yeah, say- I'll say everyone over the course of the season, you know. <laughs> got to give everyone there to you. Um, I... Yeah, for, for sure. He's got a he's got a point, to be fair, and I apologise for being... It's a shame. They're my local team. They're just down the road, you know? I should be giving them more love. Wow. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You're probably not a million miles away from the lieutenant himself. Oh, scary. Herr Scheisskopf. Um, <laughs> Stockport 3, Sutton They've also won two in a week, Stockport. This one was ended early as a contest, really, with a, an Omar Bugil red card, which I think... Was a red. It's not one where I think you idiot, you were trying to hurt someone, but did very much catch the Stockport player on the way down on the knee after challenging for a bouncing ball. And it didn't look good. It was right in front of the ref. And I think it probably did fit the serious foul play threshold. And after that, Stockport just had quite a lot of fun, really flying forward, scoring goals. James Brown, the right back, feeling good. Lovely cross for Wooten to score. Uh, Collar and Hippolyte have both really caught my eye in the last few weeks, breaking forward from sort of number eight central midfield roles. Uh, and Paddy Madden playing well at the moment. He's much more of an all-rounder than I remember him um, when he was banging in goals as a, as a sort of young poacher. Um, but it's Wooten that I want to talk about, the striker and League Two strikers more broadly, because I did some research last week, which I think will hopefully add to the pod. Um, it came from a chat on the NTT 20 squad, the League Two channel, we were discussing the fact that in League Two, you're never going to get a striker that can do everything. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in League Two. So it's about sort of picking your poison and balancing your team around that. You might have a big man, for example, that doesn't score much. You might have a goal scorer that does nothing apart from that. And and we can all think of examples of both of those, I think. So I did some digging. Uh, I set myself a task of breaking down the number nine role broadly into five skills uh, and then analysed the current League Two strikers. So, you know, the broad categories were scoring, which is basically getting into good areas and scoring goals, facilitating, um, carrying the ball slash drawing fouls, uh, pressing or out of possession stuff, and then aerial ability. Um, and I won't go through all the metrics, uh, but if you want to read the full analysis, you can join the NTT20 squad uh, and I'll send it your way. But the conclusions were basically that there's obviously no striker in League Two that's good at all five of those things. In fact, no one's even in four of those five buckets. But the ones that appeared in more than two were Callum Hendry of Salford City, whose name popped up time and time again. He's doing some great things up front for Salford in terms of pressing, facilitating, ball carrying. And he's not far off. He's not bad in the air either. It's just his finishing, his goal scoring, where he is getting opportunities, but his finishing has been so wasteful. But he, if, he, if you think, or if you're the type of person that believes XG is more predictive of future goal numbers than goal numbers at this stage, then you have to think Hendry will probably have a burst at some point. And then Wooten's the other one. He appeared in the aerial box, the pressing box and the facilitating box. So you you can kind of see why he's the sort of player you want in your team at this level. Unfortunately, his XG and his goals and his shot numbers are all quite poor. But since I did the research, two and two got two two goals in two games. So we might have in Kyle Wooten, League Two's best all-round striker. We might do. We might not do. Anyway, where else should we go? Barrow beat Crew 3-0, which means it's two and two for them. Grimsby and Crew disposed of in the same week, George. Yeah, Barrow uh, bouncing back. I mean, their home form is very good, isn't it? They've won uh, six of their last eight. Um, I think it would have been easy for them after such a good start to the season to somewhat regress a little bit and it looked like that was going to be the case. But a 3-0 win here, um, you know, they went 3-0, went 2-0 up before half time. 
um, crew missed opportunities in the game themselves. They won't feel like they were they were beaten three nil uh, Awakwe with probably the best opportunity. Although I've seen it's been given like a, I think because it's so close, it's been given like an, an XG of like. 0.6 or something where it's actually you know it's, it's basically a tackle and he's having to go the outside of his boot to try and divert it in it's certainly not as easy as as, as that makes it look um, but even so you know that they will feel like it would have been a very different game had that gone in um, but yeah Pete Wilde and Barry continue to do very very good things Two nice assists from from Whitfield the sort of the story that came out of this game was that uh, Barrow's goalkeeper Paul Farman had to come off at half time uh, and leave and go and visit his wife who was giving birth to their child um, mm. a baby son uh, which meant that Josh Lillis filled in in the second half they they c- conspired to keep a clean sheet between them I'm not sure statistically would you give either of them a clean sheet if they both played 45 minutes and didn't concede oh that is a good question I don't think I would <laughs> I, I definitely I definitely don't think you give the sub a clean sheet do you what why would you not give the sub a clean sheet if you're giving the starter a clean sheet? Well, I just I just feel like that's the way it works. I just was. feel like if you start the game, stupid. I mean, obviously these things are all arbitrary, but there there will be some, you know, data websites that have to attribute a clean sheet or not to a player, and I I don't know what they would do. Well, you know what's not arbitrary? A new human life. In fact, it's the most beautiful thing that exists. And congratulations to the Farman family. He tweeted one of my favorite tweets ever. He said, "Well, what a week." Full of oi oys. <laughs> I love the idea that having a child is an oi oi. <laughs> he tweeted biggest two, win, biggest winning ever back. He tweeted two wins, forty five minute clean sheet, debatable, and Toon win. Obviously a Newcastle fan, and then world record time back from Barrow to home and made it in time for the birth of my little boy. Thank you for all the messages. So congratulations, great story. Uh, no word yet on whether he's done the right thing uh, and named it Sam, Sam Farman or Farman Sam, but uh, we'll wait and hear about that. As for Crew, lot of lot of hand wringing after this one. Uh, I'm getting the sense that the the fan base, who were quite keen for Alex Morris to do very well and 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 quite keen to give Alex Morris time to build and now considering that construction is is very much not showing signs of of progression um i saw them last week against wimbledon they were pretty poor um they drew 1-1 but really they probably were uh, second best uh, and they certainly were here as well so not great and um, what about wimbledon though george uh, 3-2 winners against harrogate 1-0 up 2-1 down 3-2 winners late drama at plow lane yeah, really late drama and a kind of mad game, really, where um, the goals were somewhat bizarre. Um, mm. there, there were two goals where I had to go back and watch them again. Um, looking at the uh, the opener from Kalambai, you know, I don't want to take away a player's first goal for their club in five, but it looked to me like Curry um, diverted the ball into the back of the net. His arm went up. It looked like that was the case. And then I couldn't work out what happened for ages for Courtney Senior's uh, equaliser in the 84th minute where it looked like actually the ball was kind of deflected off his foot and looped back over um, the uh, back over Jameson. But for, you know, for, Har- for, for Harrogate to be 2-1 up in a game of this magnitude and, and to come away with nothing would be very disappointing for them, um, especially off the back of that decent win last weekend. Uh, Johnny Jackson and Wimbledon needed this, though. It does feel like the kind of result and the, the way that the game uh, transpired should, um, you think, give them the, the boost and the positivity to go forward um, because they've had a difficult time this season. But if this galvanises the, the fan base and the manager together, uh, the way that often late goals can do at home, then, mm. uh, then that will be a benefit. Alfie Bendel, 
young midfielder, he's had a few mentions, came off the bench, uh, brought tenacity and some quality on the ball as well, and passed his driving test on the Saturday morning before the game as well. So congratulations, Alfie, uh, on passing your driving test. I don't know if that was first time. Did you pass first time? Mm, hmm. No. Okay. Don't worry. Not everyone does. But I, my first test, my first test lasted, what was it, 25 seconds? <laughs> Oh, so I forgot of, about this. Do you remember? Yeah, I didn't look over my shoulder, basically reversing when leaving the place, and I was told just to stop. Turns uh, out the instructor was a Swindon fan. Way! Tramia nil, Carlisle two, uh, and they did it all without Jordan Gibson and without Finn back, two of their best performers this season. So a big win, an impressive away day uh, from Carlisle, from Simpson, uh, Christian Dennis at the double who's having a cracking season. I tell you, it looks so good. Even some of his play outside of scoring is, is excellent. Back to goal stuff, um, an aerial threat too. Um, Carlisle haven't had a 20-goal-a-season striker since Carl Hawley in 2005-2006, per uh, local journal John Coleman. So it'd be nice to see someone reach that tally. Uh, big save from mm. Tom, Thomas Holy. Should shout out at, at 1-0. Um, kept the minute. Uh, really good reaction save from the big keeper. Uh, and then the last word, I'll go back to John Coleman, who's one of my favourite of all the local journos who cover us in the FL team. Uh, Carlisle's lineup included four Cumbrians, Charters, Huntington, Moxon, Ellis. He said, we reckon the last time that happened was April the 18th, 2015. And I just liked the idea of Carlisle United one day going full athletic club and only signing, <laughs> only signing Cumbrians. Nice. If they do, maybe they could persuade big Jared Branthwaite to come back to the club. That could mm. be, uh, that'd help. Yes. Uh, last but not least, George, <clears throat> Doncaster Rovers beat Gillingham 1-0. This is Danny Schofield's first win as Doncaster manager. Impressive as well. You know, I thought, I thought they were um, the early signs under Schofield, very early days, obviously, but there seems to be a marked improvement from what we saw um, under the previous regime. Um, you know, they were good value for their win. Gillingham, despite their clear, clear issues in terms of scoring goals, they aren't an easy team to play against, not really an easy team to beat either. Um, they just don't score many goals. They don't concede many either. But um, Donnie able to, to get the all-important goal to, to go ahead. And, and I think the one thing you can say, they're probably quite an easy team to beat once you go ahead because mm. uh, of their attacking issues. But um, I think it was it one loss in eight before that one for, for Gillingham. So um, yeah, Schofield certainly... Um, getting the, the Donny fans on board early uh, and better displays because we know that it wasn't the results. It was the the actual performances that cost McSheffrey his job. Um, but we're seeing an improvement already. Damn right we are. Fans are loving it. Reeve. That's the Twitter handle of someone that tweeted us on Sunday with a lot of E's <laughs> in between an R and a V. Said Rovers look a completely different team under Schofield. Finally, there seems to be a clear game plan and repeated patterns of play to pass through the press. Wow, if, so many peas. There's one thing that I love. It's repeated patterns of play to pass through the press. <laughs> he said, results have not been remarkable, but it feels like something's brewing. So that's where we'll finish. Exciting times at Donny under Danny Schofield. Um, thank you to Betfair for their continued support of this podcast. It's been a pleasure to bring it to you today. Uh, three leagues, all of them magnificent in their own ways uh, and a brilliant weekend to chat about with my friend and colleague, George Ellick. Uh, I've been Ali Maxwell. If you like this pod, uh, why not share it? Give it a retweet on Twitter. We may reach a new listener or two. If you really like the pod, you could join the Not The Top 20 squad, uh, 150 strong uh, fans of the EFL and 
fans of non-EFL teams as well. Everyone's welcome. Join using the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, we'll be back again in the second half of the week with a betting show. And we hope that you have a good week. Go out. Well.